0: I'll draw your attention back to Genesis 3 this morning. I was going to read a little bit more of our text this morning, but for time's sake, we are going to read just verse 14 and 15. Genesis 3:14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would enable us to hear your word this morning, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold the beauty of your word, that we might behold your glory, that we might Take in the the holiness that Isaiah saw. Lord, we ask that you would open our ears to hear the proclamation of your gospel. That we might hear the good news here this morning. Good news to a lost and dying race of man. Lord, may we feel your presence among us. Lord, you are so far above us, but you are with us. We thank you that we have access through Christ, that we might approach your throne of grace with our prayers, and with our worship. Lord, may we glorify you here this morning and what we do, what is said, and may you enable us to take it with us throughout this week that we might meditate upon it. Lord, we thank you. Open up your word to us this morning, Lord. It's the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we ask these things and pray. Amen. Well, we've discussed before. But as it relates to the message, I want us to think about this again in maybe a little bit different way. I, uh, we often find this particular situation in our lives, it may be in our own lives, it may be in the life of our family members that we know and that we, we are around on a regular basis, or it may be, and it often is, it is, the case that this is going on in the lives of numerous people at any given time in any given place Um, the situation is this and i'm i'm speaking of this uh, as a picture of something greater an analogy of sorts and a uh, a picture in a physical sense uh, or an illustration of what we have been and are continuing to look at this morning and deal with from scripture All analogies, we've said this before, that all analogies break down at some point. And uh, analogy is only as good as it goes so far. But uh, I hope that you'll uh, bear with me this morning as I use this analogy as it uh, carries and applies to what we are speaking of. The situation is this, a man has been living and he feels a certain way. He experiences things, and he has grown accustomed to the way life feels, his existence, his, his body, his physical body. It works in a certain way, and it feels a certain way. His energy level, his, his sleep is constant. Uh, the way in which he goes about his day, his appetite consistent from day to day, and then all of a sudden something changes in that. Uh, Something's different. Something's quite different. I remember back to when Dad started having issues with appetite and eating because of his esophageal cancer. I think of that. Something's not the same. Something's changed in the, the normal course of events or the normal course of the way this individual feels in his life. And as is often the case, at least for those of us who are somewhat stubborn, our first instinct is to often try and do something about that ourselves to alleviate what we're feeling, to mask it, if you will, instead of it just all at once going to the physician and having the physician diagnose what it is that's wrong with us. Some of you may be a little bit stubborn in that way, as I am. Wouldn't know anything about that, would I? <laughs> Man's afraid of bad news. Isn't that kind of the universal case of things? Man's afraid of of bad news. He fears a bad prognosis. He fears a a, uh, a diagnosis that is troubling. Uh, But this person finally comes around to seeing the doctor, probably because his wife just went ahead and made the appointment for him and forced him to go. But he meets with the doctor and the doctor asks some questions and the doctor probes and prods and pokes on his patient to bring out what it is that's going on and to diagnose what has occurred or is occurring to change the, the, the course of the way this man feels or the way that something is, is affecting this man. And at last the doctor calls the man in and the man is sitting before him and the doctor gives the diagnosis it's cancer it's a deadly disease man slinks down in his chair grief and and fear grip the heart of the man and he's drawn into a state of despair the doctor then goes on to talk about the cancer and one of two things occurs in this common situation to to mankind the first the doctor speaks and tells more about the cancer and he doesn't speak of a remedy for the man there's no cure and that leaves man without hope only the time that remains in this man's physical life is all that he has he has no hope of recovery but the other thing that can happen is that the doctor continues to speak, and, and man, of course, is listening intently because this is a, a life or death matter. Cancer is a serious thing. In the midst of the doctor going over the course, the, the cause of the cancer, the way the, effect, the cancer affects the body, the location of it, there's a word spoken of by the doctor of treatment a course of action that may remedy the situation. Or a cure for the malady that affects the body. Here, in the midst of bad news regarding his terrible diagnosis, is the first glimpse of good news. The first glimpse of good news. And the man stops the doctor and says, Doctor, tell me more about this. I hear a word of hope. A word of light has been shown into the darkness of my condition, of my situation. I heard that there may be good news of a remedy. Against the backdrop of this terrible disease, this cancer, how sweet is the first glimpse of hope. How sweet is that? Brothers and sisters, did you hear that in the text that we just read this morning? Did you hear that as we read God's word? We've been coming to this. We have seen how our Lord God has made us, how he created the world and all that is in it, how he made us, how he made Adam our first ancestor, how he was made and how he was provided for. Adam, who is our federal head, our representative of our human race. A man who had no need, who had no sickness, perfect in his constitution. And then he sent. And he experienced something That he had never experienced before. He felt that something was wrong. Desperately wrong. And the diagnosis wasn't good. Genesis 2.17 tells us what the effects of this condition are. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it. You shall what? Surely die. But here in the midst of. Curse that we read about this morning is the promise of blessing, the first good news. So let's look at this and may God be pleased through His Spirit to give us ears to hear and eyes to see this morning the good news of the gospel here in the third chapter of Genesis. Let's begin by looking here at verse 14. <clears throat> The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat, all the days of your life. We find here God speaking to the serpent. And he doesn't question the serpent. He doesn't enter into discourse with the, he, the serpent. He doesn't have a, a dialogue with the serpent as he did with Adam and And Eve, he addresses him directly with a curse. This is something that's worth noting here that scripture reveals to us, that God first comes to Adam and Eve after the fall, and after they realized that something was wrong. This is what we dealt with last week. God seeks them out as they are hiding in the garden. He comes and he addresses them. Why does he do that? Why does God address them? Before he, if we would have read all of the text that I had planned on reading this morning, to start with, we have seen that there is also a curse that exists and that it comes not only upon the serpent, which we read, but upon Eve and then upon Adam. But prior to that, he came to them as they were hiding in the, hiding in the garden. Why did he do that? Well, quite plainly, He doesn't do this with the devil, with Satan, with the serpent, because there is no hope of redemption here for the serpent or for the fallen angels who have followed him in his rebellion. Matthew Henry says that this discourse here is not preceded by inquiry because, and I quote from Matthew Henry, he was to be forever excluded from the hope of pardon. And why should anything be said to convince and humble him who was to find no place for repentance? His wound was not to be searched because it was not to be cured. This was one of the reasons that God entered into the discourse that we have recorded in verse 9 through 13 with Adam and Eve, where God seeks out and speaks with Adam and Eve so that they may ponder their sin They may be led to repent of that which they have done. It is in fact an act of gracious care on the part of the one whom they had wronged that he sought them out and entered into a discourse with them regarding the sin that they committed. A gracious act on the part of the one who they wronged. Satan... The devil, the serpent, gets no such treatment. He is not to be brought to repentance. He is not to be pardoned by God. There is no good news for him, as we will see in just a moment. God says to the devil, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. God places a curse on the serpent, upon the devil. There are, those, there are those who would have the first part of this curse in verse 14 be regarding just the physical serpent and the curse in verse 15 to be directed towards the devil who came in the form of a serpent. I can understand their arguments. I, I concede some points in their arguments they will make for this and admit that both of us are speculating on these things. Curses and blessings are often given to us in Scripture in a twofold manner. Both curses and blessings are. One outward upon the physical and one inward, so to speak, or one which may be more spiritual or more have a, have a more prevalent or overarching um, significance. And this may certainly be the case here, and I will not argue against those who take it this way. It's quite possible. And I'm not going to take the time to speculate here this morning or to put forward my thinking in this area. It's not something that changes what is being taught here in Scripture. But I'll leave it to say this, that this what, what is most profoundly made known to us here in both of these verses is that the enemy of mankind, the accuser, the deceiver, the tempter, the devil or Satan is here cursed by God. And he is, in fact, cursed in both verses. Cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The curse is bringing down that which was elevated. It's bringing down that which was elevated. Bringing down and debasing the tempter who was an angel, a guardian cherub, and making him lower than any beast of the field. He's brought down, he's humiliated in this way by taking the one who had the highest station and cursing him to now be relegated to the lowest station. If you remember back when we were in Ephesians and looking at Some of these things from Ephesians we read from Isaiah and Ezekiel. Listen to these words in regards to this curse. How are you fallen from heaven? How are you fallen from heaven? Taking and cursing the one who was at the highest station and bringing him to the lowest. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How are you cut down to the ground? who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoners go home? <coughs> All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb, but you are cast out away from your grave like a loathed branch clothed with the slain, those who pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot cast down and in Ezekiel 28 we read you were in the eden <coughs> excuse. excuse me <clears throat> you were in eden the garden of god high elevated You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis and topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire, emerald and carbuncle and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God, an elevated position. Thank you. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. It is the case elsewhere in Scripture that this being cast down, this being cast down to the dust, is applied not just to a literal serpent, but enemies... Who are to be humiliated and trampled underfoot. Psalm 72 9 May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. Micah 7 17, they shall lick the dust like a serpent, like a crawling like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. In Isaiah forty nine twenty three, kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. So here it is that the Lord God who created this now fallen guardian cherub has now cursed this created being and cast him to the ground out of his place of honor and debased him brought him lower than the dumbest beast of the field such is now his state there is no hope of recovery for this one he shall eat the dust he will be debased all the days of his life there shall be no end to this there will be no redemption for this one We come now to what I truly believe is one of the greatest verses in all of the Bible. If I can say it in such a way. Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. First I want to point out here That this is God's doing. This is God that is doing this. He says, I will. He will be doing this thing. He will make it this way. This is very important for us to see that God, here in the outset, is making a statement that we must understand and we must come to grips with. He shows us that He is sovereign in creation. We've seen that in Genesis 1 and 2. Clearly, he is sovereign in in creation. Now he is showing us that he is sovereign both in damnation and salvation. He is sovereign. He will do this. I will, God says, put enmity between you and the woman. I will put enmity between your offspring and your offspring. And he shall bruise your head. And this is something that God wills. He wills that he, this one offspring, will bruise the heel, or the head, excuse me. And he wills that the serpent will bruise his heel. Here we have God's sovereignty in choosing a people first hinted at and brought before us. There will be two seeds. There will be two seeds. Eve's seed and the enemy's seed. The seed of the woman and the seed of Satan. It's as if God was saying, Satan, the woman that you conversed with, who you deceived and conspired with, the woman who you had friendship with, the woman who sought your counsel instead of My word, I will that she should have an offspring that I will choose to follow after me. I will that she have a seed that I will be gracious to and I will be their God and they will be at enmity with you and those who follow you. Now there are some I should mention that take this reference to the seed of the serpent as fallen angels, those demons who follow Satan. Because they say that not all of Eve's seed will follow him. So they logically, they say then that it logically follows that this can't include members of the human race. Because in the human race, there are both those who follow God and those who are not followers of God. And though I hold some of these men in very high regard who make this statement, I don't think that they have properly thought this through. For neither does all of the seed of Eve follow after God. Not all of the seed of Eve follow after Satan. You can't make this both ways. And make it just the seed of Satan being those who are spiritual beings that are fallen. Not all are saved. Not all go to hell. There is a mix within the human race. So to say that there can be none of these that are part of the seed of the serpent, the seed of Satan. None of these can be members of the human race actually denies what Jesus said. In John 8, 44, in speaking of some members of the human race, members of a religious body, Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. We've read this several times. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In other words, Jesus is telling this group of religious leaders, you are his seed. You are of your father, the devil. John 1, or 1 John 3, excuse me, verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. In other words, what are they? They're members of his seed. Lord willing, we'll cover this more at a later time we must understand this I believe to be two seeds there are those who are God's people the seed that is is designated here as the seed of the woman and there are those who are Satan's seed or those who are against God he has put enmity between them this is pointing us even here at the beginning to what God is doing in salvation pointing to what God is doing in salvation he has willed to make a people out of the human race his own possession and he must will it and he must do it or they will never come to him never first john three twelve says we should not be like cain now we'll get to this in a few weeks we should not be like cain who was of, listen to the way that the Spirit inspired Scripture. God, the Spirit, working in and through John to record this for us in 1 John. Listen to how he describes Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. God says, I will put enmity between them. Do you see this necessity then that it be God's will? That he wills to put enmity between these two seeds. That he will to make the seed of the woman and He wills to make the seed of the serpent at enmity with each other. The whole human race is in sin, but God wills that He make some the seed of the woman, His people. It's His own choosing. Jeremiah 32, 38. We could look at numerous scriptures for this. Jeremiah 32, 38. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 28. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you, listen to the I wills, and cause you to walk in my statute and statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Later in Ezekiel 37:23, they shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them. From all their backslidings in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. A couple of verses later, my dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Genesis 17:8, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Zechariah eight eight, And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Hebrews 8.10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He wills to do this. God will fight this battle. This will be God willing this, God's choosing, God's doing, and God's completing that which he has willed in this regard and in every other. And as he is revealing this to to us, it is here that we find the very first mention of the gospel in verse 15. What theologians refer to as the Proto-Evangelium or Evangelium. It's the first good news or the first gospel. It comes from that Latin word that's made up of two words, proto for um, the first you know, we, we talk about a prototype being the first thing made of a series of things that are made. It's a prototype. It's the first. And then the good news. It's the first good news. It's the first gospel here in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel enmity between your offspring plural and her offspring plural and he of her offspring singular shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. All of this being said, in the hearing of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, as God pronounces His curse upon the serpent before He pronounces His curse upon Eve and then Adam. So here is the first mention of good news. All the bad, death, sin, has come into a perfect world in catastrophe Has occurred. Chaos has ensued. And yet. Here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. Here it is. There is one coming. Of the seed of the woman. There is one coming. Who will crush. The serpent's head. What glorious news this is. To dying man. The first glimpse of a cure. The first good news. We'll discuss this maybe further in the next message. But here is hope that is most profound. That God has grace in store for those who don't deserve any of it. Death has been a consequence. But this death will not end the human race. For there's to be an offspring, plural, so that there may be one who will come of the seed of the woman who will defeat the enemy and give life. The promise of life being heard for the first time here in Genesis 3.15. The first good news, the first gospel promise has just been announced. Great joy, I'm sure, at hearing this. It's the same message that was brought by the angel who appeared to those shepherds that were keeping their flock and watching after them by night in Luke, Luke 2, 10 and 11. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Why? Why? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is what Genesis 3.15, the first good news is pointing to oh so many years later Mary asks does she not when she heard the news she had a question didn't she the angel that came to her what was her question Mary said to the angel how will this be since I'm a virgin how will this be listen to the angel's answer And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. God is telling us here, even in Genesis 3, there's a plan. I will to do something about this Situation that the whole human race has now fallen into because of Adam and Eve's sin, primarily because of Adam's sin. He's saying, I will to do something about this. Of the seed of the woman, one will be born who will bruise Satan's head. And this was in the curse directly to Satan. Satan, there's one coming who is going to defeat you he's going to undo the works of the devil it's what we read later in the old and the new testament god is saying i'm going to bring one from the seed of the woman to make things right to defeat the enemy oh the enemy's going to bruise his heel there's going to be suffering there's going to be hardship but in the end this one will crush his foe and here it is i'll never forget martin lloyd jones treatment of this beginning to end he says to keep an eye on the scriptures on this promise from genesis 315 he says beginning to end keep an eye on this promise when you go through scripture don't get lost in the details He says, as things unfold according to these two seeds, don't get lost. And he's right. Look at it even as it begins, even as it begins, even, even Adam, Adam and Eve have two sons. Do they not? Cain and Abel. Oh, this must be it. This must be the seed. This must be the one. I've got one who's following after God and one who isn't. I've got one who has faith and there's one who isn't. Two seeds. Surely it must be Abel who has faith. This must be the seed. And what happens? Cain slays his brother Abel. Kills him. Enmity. I will put enmity between your seed and And her seed. Here it is. The very next generation. Here it is. Is all lost? Is it over? No. I tell you, Eve's already looking. She's already looking for her seed. Another offspring who will war against the offspring of the enemy. Look at Genesis 4.25. Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. Instead of Abel. For Cain killed Abel. God is already providing Here it is, two offsprings, two offsprings. And then we come down through history to Noah, do we not? And we think as we read in Genesis 6, 5 through 7, where we read, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had man made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of heaven, for I am sorry that I had made them. Surely now all is lost. All this sin that the Lord sees. Surely now the seed of the serpent is winning the day. Now, read Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Here is one that is of the seed of the woman. One that has found grace. One that is the recipient of undeserved favor. And 100 years go by. 100 years go by. And this man, this seed of the woman, one of her offspring is ridiculed. The name of the Lord is blasphemed as he prepares for that which is told to him will happen and years and years go by and it doesn't happen. Name of the Lord being blasphemed before Noah who was referred to as a preacher of righteousness. Who uh, is standing alone as being an offspring of her against the whole host of offspring of our enemy. Alone, heralding the good news to rebellious and sinful man. And you think after a hundred years waiting for God to act, that surely The seed of the serpent has overcome. And then God causes the rain to fall and he shuts Noah and his family in the ark. And he preserves the seed of the woman. What then? He comes to Abraham, or Abram, doesn't he? And he points further to Abraham the promise of the seed. The one in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed and not cursed. And that promise is related over and over again in the descendants of Abraham, is it not? You see this theme running through scripture? God choosing a people, choosing Abraham to be the father of the faithful, separating out for himself the seed, the offspring... Promises related over and over again to the sins of Abraham until Israel is existing with his 12 sons and a famine hits. Surely now, the seed of the woman will perish and starve. Yet God has already provisioned to make a way for His people. Oh, there was... Some bruising of the heel, we might say. There was some hardship, some suffering that took place to God's people. Bondage and slavery. But the offspring was preserved there in Egypt. It eventually brought to the promised land where we come to the offspring of David now the promise of the seed is being even further narrowed down the promised one of the offspring of the woman god will declare to david through the prophet nathan in 2 samuel 7:16 in your house in your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever what a great and glorious hope lies here in this promise that David's throne will last forever. Oh, but then we come to a passage like Second Kings 25. And we find what we thought or even fear was the end of the line. Here it is. is, Second Kings, starting verse 17 in chapter 24. 2 Kings 24, 17. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. Then we read in 2 Kings 25, 6 and 7, that they captured the king, that's Zedekiah. This is David's line. This is the throne of David that's going to endure forever forever according to God's promise, is going to endure forever. The king of Babylon, then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered. Now listen. How was this throne transferred down? Through the sun, right? They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah. Every single one of them. They slaughtered them. Right before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. Here surely must be the end of the line of David and the end of the promise. The line's now cut off. The death of all the sons of the king. Oh, but no we go back and we read in first kings 20 or 2 kings 24 the real king jehoiakim had already been taken captive and was being preserved in his captivity while the appointed king of babylon zedekiah all his sons are destroyed and we read in the last few verses of second kings in second kings 25 27 through 30 And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were made with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakin put off his prison garments and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. Once again, we have preserved the promise being retold to us over and over again then of this seed that is coming this one of the offspring of the woman this one seed who is going to defeat the enemy he's going to bruise his head we have this retold to us over and over again through the prophets do we not and then comes a 400 year period of absolute and utter silence from god We call that or refer to that often as the intertestamental period. That period between the closing of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. 400 years of silence. Is all lost? Is the promise done away with? Is the first message of the gospel null and void? No. The New Testament opens. Matthew 1.1 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Do you see the preservation of the seed of the woman looking forward to the coming of the promised seed, the one who will bruise the serpent's head. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Here he is. Here's the one. We read earlier there in Luke of Simeon. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And he sat the child Jesus on his lap and said to God, My eyes have seen salvation. Here's the one. Here's the seed who will crush the enemy underfoot. Galatians 4, 4-5 through 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son born of a woman. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Taking us as it were from the seed of the serpent, in making us sons, receiving us as sons, that we might be the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. Even in this redemption, It appears for a moment that the seed of the serpent may gain victory. Christ is taken into custody. Christ is crucified. Christ dies on a cross. Christ is buried. Only to have it revealed to us. In Hebrews. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things, that through death... That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is, just in case there's any mistake who this might be, the writer of Hebrews says that is the devil. 1 Corinthians 15:55 through 57 O death where is your victory O death where is your sting the sting of death is sin the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ here's the one here's the promised one from Genesis 3:15 through who through the promised seed through the Lord Jesus Christ born of the virgin Conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Colossians 2, we're told that we're made alive by God together with Him. Remember, we died, right? We died in Adam. But God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed, now listen to this, he disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In who? In Christ. Who were the rulers and authorities? Who were they? Were they not the seed of the serpent? Were they not under the authority of the one who would be crushed by the one seed of the woman? Everything in Scripture points to this. Everything does. This one that is first mentioned in Genesis 3.15, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Turn over to Luke 24 real quick. I wish we had time to read all of this. Beginning in verse 13 we remember that right after they found the empty tomb, the disciples found the empty tomb, there were two men that were walking on the road to Emmaus. They were talking with each other about what had happened. And Jesus, the risen Christ, the risen one, the risen Seed, the one seed who would bruise the serpent's head, who has already bruised the serpent's head, comes over to them, but they don't recognize him. And he has a conversation with them, and he's asking them what's going on, and they can't believe he doesn't know what's going on. And they talk to him about Jesus of Nazareth. In verse 19, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped. They had been looking for one. They're telling him we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, now it is the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones! and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory in beginning with Moses and all the prophets? He interpreted to them in all the scriptures all things concerning himself. Let me say this another way. Was it not necessary that the Christ should be bruised on his heel? Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things? And what did Christ do? He began with Moses and the prophets and declared these things that were spoken of him can you imagine having been there hearing jesus christ opening the scriptures of them uh, uh, to them and speaking of himself let me ask you could our text from this morning be the very place that jesus started the first proclamation of good news I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Isn't this where we find the first proclamation of the good news that Jesus Christ will crush the head of his enemy for all time. Let me just say in conclusion that those who remain under the power and dominion of this enemy who Jesus Christ crushes will suffer the same fate as the enemy himself. Turn to Christ. Did you hear in Galatians 4, 4-5, through but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, the promised one, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. God has revealed to us through the promise, through the message of the good news proclaimed, That there is a way that those who were of the seed of the serpent. Those who were dead in trespass and sins. Those who were without hope. Might be adopted and made sons of God. Remember back in Ephesians. When we went through Ephesians. Ephesians 1 4 through 10, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, through this one, according to the purpose of his will. I will. which he set forth in Christ as a plan which was first made mention of in Genesis 3.15. For the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. He, by his blood, has redeemed us. He has purchased us away from our slavery Not just to sin, but to the master of sin. Two seeds. Two seeds. Trust in the promised one. The one foretold as far back as Genesis 3. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that we would ponder these things in our hearts that we would see that this gospel was the good news from the very beginning. This is not plan B. That this was your plan all along. That there be redemption. That there be adoption. That you are choosing a people for your own possession. In and through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your word. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.